One of the things that's cool about getting to do Snap is talking to folk and hearing what they're hopeful about. And even in this crazy world, even when it feels like hope is hard to find, people, no matter from what walk of life they come from, no matter how much cash they have in the bank, people are hopeful about the same thing. Their children. Not the next generation. That's too grand, too amorphous. Not the bad kids living down the street or the ones that got called out on the TV. No, those kids need home training. Their kids. Their Tommy, their Nadine, their little Johnny. Even if their little Johnny is the worst kid in the playground, he's still the apple of someone's eye. Someone's got their hopes pinned on little Johnny right now. And just because you're in a bad way, in a bad circumstance, it doesn't mean you love your little Johnny any less. And that's why today, Snap joins forces with the Ear Hustle podcast for a look at one of the most difficult places there is to be a parent. San Quentin State Prison. We proudly present Thick Glass. And I'm just going to let this one play and get out of the way. We can't wait for you to hear it. Listeners should note that this episode does deal with a story from a prison context. And as such, sensitive listeners should be advised. When you were growing up, what was some advice your dad gave you? Well, that's the problem. Um, but my, um, my dad left when I was four. Yeah, the only advice I got from my dad was to be still and take this ass whooping like a man. He used to show me uh, what, what fork to use, like the crab fork, and we had all these uh, like instruments of silverware out on the table. It took me a while to get the hang of that. Oh, did my dad give me any advice? No, but he led by example of what not to do. Uh, what fork do you use for salad? It's the third one from the right. My dad never gave me any advice. Um, I think he did, but I don't recall. Did your dad ever give you any advice? Mm-mm. Um, my dad was gone by the time I was two and dead by the time I was 12. He told me to go to school, stay in college. Did you listen to him? I did not listen. Did your dad ever give you any advice? Yep, he said smoke only on the weekends. You're now tuned in to San Quentin's Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm incarcerated here at San Quentin State Prison in California. I'm Nigel Poor, a visual artist who volunteers at the prison. And together, we're going to take you inside. Today on the podcast, we're going to hear about being a dad from prison. Did your dad give you any good advice? What do you mean, when I was, like, growing up? Yeah. Not that I can recall, but when I went to prison, he did say, watch your back. <laughs> was that helpful? 
I mean, it was cool coming from him, you know? I guess it showed that he cared, right? Pretty much. <laughs> okay, well, being a parent is a lot more than giving advice. But if you're in prison, it's hard to even do that because you're in prison. Yeah, but you can actually give advice and be a dad from prison. It's harder, but a lot of guys here have children, and there's all sorts of different ways that they do it. And that's what we're going to hear about today. And mainly, we're going to focus on this guy here. So when I was told I was going to be a father, I started to think about what type of father did I plan on being. Derek Holloway has been incarcerated for 21 years. When his son was born, Derek was a 24-year-old drug dealer and had a lot on his mind. I can't be a father like this in my current condition and living the way that I was living. I really need to change But needing to change and actually changing your life, Derek now knows, are two different things. You know, I'm at the hospital with his mom, and seeing his face was like, wow. It was like a miracle. It was like, man, this uh, human being, I'm responsible for a human being. And so, man, what came with that was a whole lot of emotions. A whole lot, a whole lot that I wasn't even really prepared for or had even the emotional intelligence to even deal with it. And I just didn't know how to say, this child is what's most important. I just didn't have the tools. In spite of being a new dad, he didn't change. I started getting sucked in into the criminal lifestyle, criminal thinking, criminal behavior. After that, it was off to the dogs. (laughs) So um, give me a a typical day. Like, what was your, you got up and then... So, so I would I would get up and of course I would you know have girlfriends strolled all over the city. <laughs> so it, depending on what girlfriend house I was at, you know, so I would get up and kind of call around, see where everybody was doing, where everybody was going to be at, um, and I would you know hit the freeway, get to get to this block where everybody was at, kick kind of kick back, see what was going on. Um, so the typical day really was like me really making sure that the, the, the spot where we was at had, had dope out there. You know, people were out there. They were ready. The spot was rolling. Um, and so I would kick it there for a minute, but I would always be trying to run and see what, what, what the next woman, what she was doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just love women. <laughs> Derek was living a life. He was young. He had money, women. He thought he was on top of it all. So the downfall was um, beginning really to use drugs. And then he really got in trouble. In 1997, less than a year after his son was born, Derek was arrested for first-degree murder and sentenced to 37 years to life. The next time Derek saw his son, he was in prison behind thick glass in a visiting room. So he he came to visit on on his first birthday, and I'm just looking at him. And some of my thoughts was, uh, was this glass going to represent our relationship? And, um, you know, for the, for the first time, I was realizing and thinking, like, man, there's a possibility that I may never um, get an opportunity to, to see him as a child, man, grow up and, to, and have some kind of influence in his life. Come on, somebody can do better than that. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Left. To my own self, I, I couldn't find a way out. I wanted to do something different, but I didn't know how. And and coming to prison actually really gave me that opportunity to sit down and really examine my life and to begin to get the courage and to do something different with my life. Feeling good. I feel God. I feel God 
in here. I feel deliverance in here. I feel a breakthrough in this place. Whenever you talk about the... In prison, Derek got religion, and he's now a prison preacher with a full-on congregation. So if he put himself in prison, what prison are you talking about, Lord? He said, I went all the way down to hell, and I pulled the captives up, and I set them free. I did something that you can't do. Yes, you can get... A lot of guys get religion, fake religion, act religious, but Derek's not bullshit. He's like the real deal. How do you know? Because you can sit in one of his sermons, and he'll just have a tear or two in your eyes, you know? Really? I mean, and he walked the walk. He don't just walk the walk on the pulpit. He walked the walk on the yard. And he go around and counsels people, counsels the youth. So, yeah, he's real. But he couldn't counsel his own son. When his son's mother died, the boy's maternal grandmother took him in, and she thought it was best to keep him away from his father. And Derek only heard what was going on second and third hand. So when he was growing up, I heard good things early on, you know, him being in church, and, and I would send him Bibles and him playing football and, you know, him going to different schools of academies. And, and then I started hearing different things about him being, you know, in the street life and going hard. And I was really disappointed. And even hearing that made me feel grief and, and pain. And So he was basically growing up like you were. Yeah, he was growing up like I was. Derek was soon going to get a second chance to parent his son, and we're going to hear about that in a minute. But first, here's another prison dad with a very different experience of parenting from prison. I could have been a, a, a dad at 17 and been just absolutely happy and dedicated, and I think I could have been a good pop, you know, as a kid. So it was something I wanted, and uh, I was excited confident, hopeful, and fulfilled. John was 35 when his first child was born. When he committed the crime that led him to prison, his kids were three, eight, and nine years old. Uh, it happened so suddenly. It was the, the night of December 20th, and I was coming back from a Christmas party, and it was one of those drinking and driving fatality cases. So I didn't have time to, to, to think, well, what, what would happen if I were taken away from my kids? That thought never, never occurred to me. It was just utterly, chillingly sudden. From the very beginning, uh, being separated from them was the, you know, the most gut-wrenching part of it. Besides, of course, what, what had happened, that two young, innocent lives were taken because of what I had done. I tried to be open with them about my responsibility. I, I tried to, to get them tuned into that, you know, not to thinking of me as a victim. And I think that made, that made them a little more receptive to our parent-child relationship. After John was arrested, he never went home again. He was a lawyer, middle class, but he couldn't make the $750,000 bail. The family life that he knew and loved was just gone. But John was all about being a dad, and now he had to figure out how to do it from prison. Not easy. I remember they, of course, they came regularly in county jail when I was there. 
Uh, but of course, you couldn't hug them there. It was through the glass. After county jail, he got his sentence and was sent to a maximum security prison in Southern California. In that prison, his family could visit without glass between them. I'll never, as long as I live, forget the visiting room at Lancaster. And I spied them across the room, and, and Remy, that my daughter, just ran towards me. And, you know, the, just the feeling of, of hugging her. And then the boys joined me then, and I had my arms around all three of them. It might be the most emotional uh, moment that, I, that I've ever experienced. There were so many hard parts about being away from the kids, but the biggest part was that I was so limited in, in how I could carry out what I still so fervently wanted to do. Uh, as far as being a good dad to them. For the longest time, when they were small, I would write one letter a day uh, and alternate amongst the three of them. Of course, each of them would be receiving a letter every three days. I remember with my daughter, Remy, and she was the youngest, she was little, and uh, I, I started a, a series of poems called the Silly Sally Poems, and she got a real kick. She'd say, Dad, Dad, when are you going to... You know, I want some more Silly Sally. So I kept writing and writing. Finally, she got to be about eight or nine years old, and she was a little bit too old for that. But she's, she talks about those still. John's kids are all grown up now. They all went to college. The oldest is now 30. And if you're wondering what happened to their mother, she and John are still married. I mean, I'll, I'll be very frank. It was much more important and, and much more, much harder, you know, staying the, the, the meaningful father. Uh, I felt a much more biting, acute loss of the children than I did my wife, rightly or wrongly. I didn't get a chance to really speak to him at 12 or 13 or get pictures or send stuff to him and just kind of communicate with him. I didn't get any of those things. Back to Derek, who hadn't heard directly from his son in years. The time that I heard that my son was even um, thinking about me is when he was in jail. So I get on the phone with, with my sister and she says, um, I, I got something to tell you. Derek should be there, like, tomorrow. Derek should be there tomorrow. He called right before he, he left the county jail and, and said that I'm on my way to San Quentin. Derek's son, who he hadn't seen in about 20 years, is coming to his prison. What are the chances? Well, you don't see it a lot, but I've met a few guys who are locked up with relatives. But father and son, that's an entirely different level of weirdness. I told a couple of my friends, I was like, man, my son is here. And so I went out that night to see if I can get just a glimpse of him. So when his son first came to San Quentin, he went to reception which is basically orientation. And those guys there don't wear blue. They're in the orange jumpsuits. And I'm looking at every guy in orange as they're walking by. I'm kind of measuring their height, because I hadn't seen him since he was like 11 months old. 
And so I'm like measuring the height, like, okay, looking at the walk, the bill. I'm just looking at all these different things and these people trying to identify my son. So, so you had no clue what he looked like? I had no clue. You never had any pictures? I, I mean, I had one picture, but he's 20 years old now. You know, and you're trying to see, like, what what does a, from a, well, I think his last picture I got when he was, like, six years old. Like, so from six years old to 20, like, what has changed in all of those years? When Snap returns... Derek's son arrives to San Quentin to meet his father. And the meeting is like nothing you can imagine. Find out what happens when Snap Judgment, the ear hustle special, Thick Glass continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment, the Ear Hustle Special, Thick Glass. When last we left Derek Holloway, he has been incarcerated and separated from his son for 20 years. And now, decades later, Derek learns that his son is being transferred to the very same prison. The two are set to meet each other inside San Quentin for the first time since Derek was a baby. So, so you had no clue what he looked like? I had no clue. You never had any pictures? I, I mean, I had one picture, but he's 20 years old now, you know? And you're trying to see, like, what what does a, from a, well, I think his last picture I got when he was, like, six years old. Like, so from six years old to 20, like, what has changed in all of those years? You kind of walk in. I noticed him from the picture, even though it was old. I noticed him, and then... He just came up and just gave me a hug and just started crying, breaking down. That's Derek Jr. He's serving five years for robbery. So when I looked at him and I just saw the love in his eyes, so kind of felt the connection right there. That's like, um, it's like it's different. You talk to a lot of people, but you never actually feel that connection until you're sitting there with your dad. You never met him at all, and then you finally just sitting there eye to eye. They saw themselves in each other, father and son. But really, they were strangers. All they had between them was some DNA and this old memory. First memory of my dad I had was probably going to the jail and seeing the, the glass in the mirror and seeing somebody behind it. That's all I remember. So he's talking and I'm looking at him and... And I'm, and I'm and at, in between our conversations of, you know, how, what, what has he been doing? You know, how is his girlfriend? How is my granddaughter? All of these different things. How's, you know, how's his grandmother? Asking him all these questions. In between those things was this reality setting in that I'm in prison with my son. And I'm trying not to let that affect me as, I'm, as I speak with him. But, but the reality of it just kept hitting me. I'm in the cell with my son. So there they are, father and son, 
reuniting in a fucked up place. I mean, prison is not set up for family life, that's for sure. For Derek Sr., he had to figure out how to be a dad to his son in a way that he had never been able to do on the outside. How am I supposed to show up now? Like, am I supposed to be like his partner? You know, am I supposed to be like dad? Am I supposed to be like my father? Like, what am I supposed to do? And it was so uncomfortable, but it was a good uncomfortableness. And it was like one of, it was like that kind of uncomfortableness, like when I walk away, like, I can't wait to be uncomfortable like that again. For me, right, the very first time that um, I heard Derek call me dad, it was, um, it was as though God spoke to me and I turned around so fast before he even really can get it all the way out. How, how does it feel to say dad? At first it felt awkward, like, oh no, it felt awkward. Cause I ain't never said it. I ain't. I mean, I had no reason to. So, and when I say it, I, I catch myself, and I be like, "Oh, shut." After about three days after he was here, I went up to his cell, and I said, "Yeah, come out." We was on the tier. I said, "Come out," and came out of the cell, and I said, "Um, your dad a kiss right here." And, I, and he kissed me on the cheek. I, I about ready to fly off the fifth tier. I was ready to just, yeah. He, when he showed up here, um, that was like one of the things I had like on my calendar. Like, man, when is his birthday? I'm, so I, I made sure everything was all in place. Let me make sure I get this package right. Let me make sure I get all this stuff right. So when it's his birthday, I'm gonna go make him something. Cause he had never really tasted my cooking. Took, came up there, told me happy birthday, hugged me and kissed me, and then told me he was getting ready to cook. And I ain't never ate his cooking. So what did he make for you on your birthday? <laughs> uh, it was a rice bowl, but it had Seafood we had all different type of stuff and different type of vegetables and everything. Yeah, it was. I don't even eat vegetables. Yeah, but I ate them. <laughs> so I'm strolling. I'm coming down the back of the building. So the back of the building, I got to turn and go upstairs. So I'm turning, rolling. I see Big Derek and Little Derek in the shower. <laughs> they side by side. Right? I'm like, that's you, like 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh. you <laughs> Muscles gone. <stretched. laughs> I know. I was looking at too. That's crazy. That, yeah, because that wouldn't happen in too many places. No, that wouldn't no. happen in too many. Oh. Where you just sitting in the shower with your son, y'all just you know cutting and, it, and they just. And even that was awkward, man. You know that. Uh, but I had to force myself through it, like, man, like this is the reality, man. Like, man, I'm next. Like, where do they do this at? I watch him walk up the stairs sometimes, right? I'm walking behind. He always going faster than me. And I watch him go up. And I remember how how I used to walk. And so when I watch him walk up the stairs, sometimes I'm like just staring at him like, man, look at me. That is me. And sometimes it is so overwhelming because nobody wants prison 
for their child. And so it makes me more protective. You know, now I'm more like, okay, where are you at? And, and I'll, I'll see him, but I don't let him see me. <laughs> that brings up a whole nother thing. But yeah, just watching him, watching his mannerisms, how he interacts with people on the tier, how he interacts with people in the prison, very outgoing. And I tell him this all the time. I say, you're just the functioning um, extrovert because really you're an introvert like me. <laughs> you really want to be by yourself. You really do good by yourself, but because we're outgoing people, we, you know, people talk to us and like us. And so I see that in him. But he, he has no problem being by himself. <laughs> we basically do everything just alike. When I get mad, I don't be bothered. I go outside at night, and I just be walking. And one night, I was just walking like, what the hell is you doing out here? He was like, man, I didn't feel like being bothered. And then we both ended up just being out there walking. <laughs> then we always just run into each other out there like, man. I am nervous every time the alarm goes off. I am like, where is he? Is he involved? Is there is there a fight? Um, <laughs> you know, and so for me, it is an anxious day every day. <laughs> now I know what my parents went through. Wow, I'm serious. You reap what you sow. I'm telling you. <laughs> so. We last heard from you in season one when we were talking about the Boom Boom Room. Oh, yes. The Mission Impossible conception of my son. That's Maverick. In season one, he told us how him and his wife decided to start a family while he was in prison. Here's a clip from that episode. I had been at this prison for two years, and we had mastered the art of being intimate on the patio. It got us to talking, and she was like, I wish I could have a kid right now. And that got me to thinking. I'm like, oh, man, this is the only thing that you can give her. You uh, you should go in here and give her this. I would only get a visit, like, maybe once. How old is he now? He is 15 years old. So he's a teenager. Man, tell me about it. Maverick's been in prison for his son's entire life. But they have visits and phone calls. And letters. Yep. That's what you got to work with if you want to be an active parent from prison. And starting about a year ago, Maverick began having family visits. And that's one of the biggest privileges here. It's huge. That's when your wife and your kids... Or it can be your parents and siblings come to stay with you for a few days in a cottage here. And we asked Maverick to tell us about the latest family visit he had with his wife and his son. I cut his hair for the first time, and that's like a rite of passage for every father to cut his son's hair at some point in time. And he was scared at first because the whole month before the visit, I told him, you better not get your hair cut. Don't get your hair cut. I'm going to cut your hair. And he's like, oh, all right. Uh, You know, he was skeptical. And then I brought my, my clippers out, and when it came time to do it, I'm like, take off your shirt. And he's embarrassed because, you know, he's he's a little big fella for his age. And uh, he's like, oh, and he, it was so funny. I'm like, boy, if you don't stop, I am your daddy. I gave you that, you know. It ain't no judgment. I ain't never going to judge you. 
you are about to go to one of the most horriblest, cruelest places on the planet. High school. And some people are going to be making fun of your body. If you are embarrassed of your body, then kids are going to use that against you. So you got to be comfortable in the skin you in. So just get comfortable. After I cut his hair, he went to look at it. And he was like, oh, my good, Oh, my goodness. Papa, this is this is great. You know, I, I got to pay forty dollars to get this haircut. And I was like, yeah, boy, you're going to be able to get that every day when I uh, come home. And it, it, it just gave me a glimpse of how thirsty he is to have a father in his life. But I believe that unsurety of exactly when I was going to come home, it was occupying too much of his mind. I got him worrying about me in here so much where he can't focus in class. And that's what hurts me the most. Me not being able to help him process this. Me not being able to be there to to just be there to help him, to hold him, to let him know Look, it's going to be all right. It's been a long struggle, but the good news is his son might have his dad home soon. Maverick has a date, which means he could be released on parole sometime this year. Thanks for coming back. I know this isn't an easy one. So what we wanted to talk about... um, was what happened with your son. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, um, I actually got a call at work and said that um, they were ready to transfer Derek and um, they were like transpacking him right now. So I needed to get there right away. Went back to the building so his his door is open and and I see a lot of boxes out in the front and some of his tubs and, you know, and it, and it really began to sink in that he was getting ready to leave. And I had all these emotions going on, like, um, could I said something else? You know, what else could I have done? Should I have moved him in? Um, you know, should I have been there a little bit more, kind of like fending off some of these bad people had all these emotions going all these thoughts all these feelings the reason Derek jr was transferred out of san quentin is because he got in trouble for contraband and it was happening fast so Derek senior went to go see him one last time did he say anything to you yeah he just kind of looked and and i i read his 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 thoughts kind of i looked in his eyes and it was like you know dad i don't really want to leave um but I know I have to at this at this point, and and um, they're waiting on me in R and R right now. I said, "Yeah, no." I said, "Well, I'll, I'm gonna help you carry your stuff down." And then when he comes out to actually leave, he has on his blue uniform, as I like to call it, and he had his hair up in the you know because he has his long hair, so he's got it up with these dreads. He's got it up in a ponytail, and I'm looking at him, 
we're standing at the end of the, at the top of the stairs, and he, and he hugs me, and he's like, Dad, I love you. And, man, he shoots down the stairs so fast. I'm trying to keep up when I realize how young. <laughs> so he goes out the door, and I'm following him. I'm like, I'm going to walk down there with you. And he's walking down, and I remember studying everything about him. I actually walk behind him just to look at him. And I'm studying his, his body motion, his footsteps and everything. Yeah. Where did he go? To um, Vacaville. Which is a level three? Which is a level three. What's your biggest fear for him now? Um, that he won't make it out. So as we said, Derek Jr. came in with a five-year sentence. But Derek Sr.'s fear is that it could turn into a much longer sentence. I know you've said you've seen this happen to guys. Yeah, I've seen a guy that came in with a car theft and committed murder in prison, and he's been here 46 years. Right, he's still at San Quentin. Still here. So that's one big concern for Derek Sr. The other is he's lost daily contact with his son. He told us he's waiting to get permission to exchange letters with him, but yeah, it's a blow. The closeness that he achieved for the first time with his son isn't going to be easy to maintain. It's not just that Derek Sr. is in prison, which is hard enough. His son's now in a different prison in a different part of the state. It's now like they have two thick layers of glass between them. Erlon, you know we get a lot of letters, right? Right. So many so that when we are deep into production, it's really hard for me to keep up with them. So I put them in a box so I can get to them shortly. But while we were working on this episode, I happened to pull one randomly out of that box, and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, we get letters from all over, asking all kinds of stuff. But when we got this one, we thought we'd ask John to handle it. Okay, this is a letter, it looks like, from a, a youngster named Jalen. It says, my name is Jalen. My dad is in prison. I'm nine, nine and a half years old. I re- really like listening to your podcast. Oh. My dad does not write me a lot now. Can I get him to write me more? Please, please write back. Thanks, Jalen. P.S. Can you share this or one of your podcasts, please? So, so reading that, like, what do you get? Like, what was, what is your advice to him? Oh you? man, I've got tears in my eyes and something in my throat right now. Jalen, if you're listening in now, my heart goes out to you, little one. I don't know what is in your dad's heart. Um, Wherever he is in this system, uh, there are a lot of pressures on him. Please don't stop. Please. Your letter says that he does not write to you a lot, so that's telling me that he does write you some. Uh, 
So the caring is there. Dig, on, dig deep into that little heart and soul of yours and, and try to find the best words you can to let your dad know how important staying in contact with him is to you, how much you love the letters that you do get, how much you get out of them. And I bet you your letters are going to make him understand how important whatever he has to say is in your life. What a great letter, Jalen. Keep it up. Please, please. Jalen, we really appreciate you sending that letter. And I hope you heard your name in that Christmas song, Jalen. Thanks to all the fathers we spoke to for this episode, Derek, John, and Maverick, and thanks to Derek Jr. too for being part of the story. Ear Hustle was produced by myself, Erlon Woods, and Nigel Poor, with help from outside producer Pat Masidi Miller, who also works with the sound design team. This episode was scored with music and sound design by David Jazzy and Antoine Williams, with contributions from Lee Jaspar, Maserati E, and Charlie Spencer. Curtis Fox is our story editor, and Julie Shapiro is our executive producer for Radiotopia. We also want to thank Warden Ron Davis, and as you know, every episode has to be approved by this guy here. I'm Lieutenant Sam Robinson, the public information officer at San Quentin State Prison, and I approve this story. did I tell you? A huge thank you to all the men for sharing their stories and big thanks as well to the Ear Hustle team for producing that piece. Please keep up the amazing work and to Jalen know that the whole Snap fam is sending you love. Ear Hustle is produced from inside San Quentin State Prison and there are hours of episodes for you to experience, pictures from the stories and so much more. Find out about life on the inside. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts We're going to have links on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now, when we return, we're going to have a special conversation with the very people who make this podcast possible. And we're going to learn something about that letter, something you are most definitely going to want to hear on Snap Judgment, the Ear Hustle special, Big Glass continues. Stay tuned. From WNYC Studios, Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Ear Hustle special, Thick Glass. My name is Ben Washington, and now Ear Hustle, it's produced from inside San Quentin State Prison. And for this next segment, we arranged a phone call between myself and the Ear Hustle team. Our conversation starts with Lieutenant Sam Robinson, the public information officer. 
Hey, Glenn, this is Sam Robinson at San Quentin State Prison with uh, Ear Hustle at All. Hello. They're getting their mics and earphones ready, so. Hey, what's up with you, Glenn? How you doing? Hey, everybody. Hey, Glenn. First of all, both Erlon and Nigel, I just want to congratulate you on your success. Um, I was thrilled to be able to play this story, and actually the story that opened a dialogue with my own kids, and I appreciated it. You know, you all got both a father and a son to be open with you. What about other family relations? Do you see a lot of different people recognizing cousins, brothers, sons? How, how does it work? Do you see that? You see it a lot. You see, I, you see it more than not. You know, uh, I was at one prison where it was like four or five brothers on the same yard. Um, here, you see it. I've seen father and son. I've seen brothers. I've seen cousins. Um, I, my cellmate, roommate, is actually my brother, my older brother. Wow. Did you know him very well before he came to San Quentin? Yes, I've, um, been my brother has been close all my life, but for the past 30 years, we have been, uh, missing each other's presence due to incarceration. Either I was incarcerated or he was incarcerated, mainly me. But I'll say when I was 17 was the last time I was actually in society with my brother. And I'm 46. And when he gets to San Quentin, when you find this out, that your brother's coming, what happens that first day when he arrives? So um, when the guys were getting here, um, I wasn't at the cell in my, and we got these little master locks we put on the door. And the cell was locked, so he couldn't get in the cell. So he was coming back around the corner, and I walked right by him. He didn't even pay me no mind. And when I walked by him, I just, I just grabbed him, you know. Whoa. And he was just shocked. He was just looking at me like, oh, what's up, man? You know, but it was funny that he just, just almost just walked right by me, didn't even know me. Wow. It's been a while. It's been a long time. But what did you guys say? What did you talk about? When he came in, our our conversations was about um, um, family and what 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 we've missed out and you know where we were at. Now we we never really um, lost contact over all the years, you know. Um, so we always stayed in touch. So how long have you been living together now? He's been here oh almost a year. Uh, yeah, June. I think he got here last June. Oh, a year? Yeah, it's been a oh, year. Yeah. Seems like it's been longer. It's, it's been an interesting year. I have learned a lot about my brother. Um, I didn't know he was so talkative, but <laughs> I've, 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 I haven't been around him in 30 years, so I didn't know. I, I forgot that part. Well, the podcast is extraordinary, and uh, I know that, that the impact is just resonating even around the globe. How does that feel to have that, to know that you're touching people um, within the confines of where you are? I think with me, I think it's the, it's the letters that come in. You know, getting letters yeah. from all over the world, um, especially the ones like from the high schools and the colleges. Yeah, um, I think the letters. Are those, the letters those are. are great. And then when they compare ear hustle to a philosopher's book, now I got to go read the book before I can respond to the letters because I don't know what the book is talking about. That's the book I'm reading right now. <laughs> Educating Michael you. Foucault's <laughs> Discipline and Punishment. Yeah, I got to read that book. Uh, <laughs> One thing that happened because of the um, thick glass story that I think resonated the most with me was at the end there was a letter that a little boy had written to us whose father was in prison and he wanted you know he wanted to know 
what he could do to get his father to write back to him. And yeah. I was so moved and also sad yeah. that that was, a, that was a little kid's option was to write to strangers to ask for advice. But the outpouring of response that he got from guys inside was extraordinary. And so was the outpouring that he got from listeners. He's gotten, he started to get letters from so many people. And recently I got an email from a teacher who said now she's pen pals with him and her whole class is pen pals with this little kid. And so it may not be his father, um, his blood father that's reaching out to him, but so many other people are. And I think that brings a real sense of, of love to him. Yeah, that was that was deep. I think even maybe it gave Lieutenant Robinson a little tear in his eye too. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, um, Lieutenant Robinson, you're you're there right now, right? Yes, sir, I am here right now. Um, I would, if you don't mind, if you could just tell us what your role is with the with the show. Um, uh, things, everything has to go through you, and so what do, what do you do? Well, what I do is um, I'm the safety valve for for the prison, so to say. Um, I'm not here to interfere with the with the heart and soul of the stories. Um, I don't even think I really make very many suggestions about anything. We want to make sure that if we are releasing materials outside the prison, that they aren't negatively impacting public safety. Uh, uh, victims or whoever the case may be, or even the the population here inside the inside of the walls of any of our prisons, and I get to listen to ear hustle before the world listens to ear hustle. Wow! And and and, and that's a, that's an honor. Uh, you know, I've been I've worked here in prison for 22 years. Um, I think I I think I know a lot, um, but every story I get. Uh, each episode brings me something new, and I think what Ear Hustle allows the public to to get is what's more complicated, uh, uh, how complex the environment is, and prison is much more complicated than uh, what most people believe it is. Uh, it's it's as complex as the world. Yeah. Hey, Glenn. There's one other person here that's yeah. important that I want to get on the mic. Absolutely. And that's Antoine. Hey, Antoine. Um, we're, we're exploring family behind bars. Do you have any stories personally about family relationships in San Quentin? Yes. Uh, in my immediate family, uh, I have one older brother. He had done maybe over 20 years incarcerated. I never did time with him, uh, because when he paroled, I came to prison and I was going on, uh, 12 years ago. But uh, my brother used to always be like, you know, how many people there know me? How many people there know me? I was like, anybody, nobody know you. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not asking people if they know who you are. But honestly, a lot of people know him here. And going on two months, a little over two months now, uh, he passed away. So I got an opportunity to uh, fellowship with a lot of the guys here that know him. And it just really helped me through my grieving process because I wasn't able to be there for my mom or my family. And it just showed me that that there is a brotherhood, there is a bond, that there is love that's generated and created here. And I feel honored to, uh, you know, to have the brother that I had and to know a lot of the guys here that knew him and loved him as much as 
you know, my family did. So that's, that stands out for me. Thank you. Thank you for letting us Thank know. Thank you. Well, um, really, I got to say, um, your stories have really made an impact in our world. And um, as you can tell, we really, really love the show. Please keep making these stories. Thank you, um, Sam, for letting this happen right now. We really appreciate it. You got it now. We appreciate y'all for listening in. Thanks, bud. All right, now, y'all have a good one. That's Erlon Woods, Nigel Poor, Antoine Williams, and Lieutenant Sam Robinson from Ear Hustle. Big, big love to Ear Hustle and Lieutenant Sam Robinson and San Quentin State Prison Warden Ron Davis for their support. And we're thrilled to let you know that Snap's own Pat Masidi Miller is working with the show as well. If you haven't subscribed to all that is the amazing podcast, Ear Hustle, please do that. Go on over to our website. I'm going to have a link to everything Ear Hustle, snapjudgment.org. It's about that time. But more stories await. How lucky you are. So many stories, including the Badlands episode where we follow a team of civilians that decides to fight Iraq and fight ISIS. What? Stories you're never going to forget. Subscribe to the Snap Judgment Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Of course, even though this, this is not the news, no way is this news. In fact, you can invest all your money in plastics only to discover that your guy down at the place thought you meant to invest all your money in Pat Stick, part-time librarian and avant-garde artist who ironically made a two-story monument to your investment and coated it in purple plastic as a commentary on the man. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. Thank you.